Along a major bridge in South Texas, workers welding barriers in place. A first-hand look at steps being taken in an apparent effort to shut down the border today on The Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. With support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm David Brown. We're talking with a reporter from the McAllen Monitor about what appears to be unprecedented work on a bridge spanning the Rio Grande and what it could mean in practical terms. Also, the FDA green lights what could be a life-saving new flu drug, though the researcher behind it says it could have happened long ago. Why the wait? Think money. Also, a deal by IBM turns the nation's attention to Texas farms and not the kind that grow crops either. All that and more today on the Texas Standard. No matter where you are, it's Texas Standard Time on this first day of November 2018. As many Texans mark Dia de los Muertos, we might encourage you that for all the colorful calaveras you may see around, not to make the mistake that some do in thinking this holiday is some kind of Mexican Halloween. The real story, far more rich and complex in part because of how it's evolved over the centuries into a mashup of cultural influences from pre-Hispanic religious rituals to Christian feasts, all happening around the time of All Saints Day and All Souls Day on the Catholic calendar and at the traditional time of the maize harvest, of course. Over the years, Texas has served as a gateway for many traditions we now embrace as part of life in Texas itself. But something's happening at the literal gateways between Mexico and Texas at the moment that is worth focusing on. As the U.S. president now talks of sending as many as 15,000 U.S. to the southern border, Lorenzo Sasueta Castro of the McAllen Monitor now reports that workers are welding gates in place and putting up other barriers around the southernmost ports of entry to Texas. Lorenzo, welcome to the Texas Standard. Thank you for having me. What are you seeing now at the, what, uh, the Progreso Bridge? Uh, yes, at the Progreso Bridge, we're seeing uh, a gate on the U.S. side right after people pay their toll, their 50-cent toll to walk uh, towards uh, Mexico uh, across the bridge. Right before you get to the line of U.S.-Mexico, there's a, a fence, a gate that uh, is open but has been placed as a preventative measure uh, in case the, the caravan that uh, is reportedly uh, trekking through and up to the U.S.-Mexico border uh, makes its way to one of the ports. Now, there have been previous mass movements of people uh, who have wanted to declare asylum in the U.S. I'm thinking back in 2014, most notably. Have barricades gone up before, or, or is this unprecedented to your knowledge? I was here in 2014, and no, there, there weren't uh, any kind of barriers put up um, that weren't already in place at, at the different ports. So no, this is, this is the first time that I've seen gates go up uh, since uh, with any kind of mass movement like that. What, what you have described in the photographs that accompany your piece uh, in the McAllen Monitor show uh, welding in place as if this is a kind of long-term uh, arrangement. What, what, what are officials telling you about why these gates are going up? I had the chance to speak with the bridge director for Progreso International Bridge, uh, Julie Ramirez. She spoke to us about uh, coming to the decision of putting these gates in place as a precautionary and preventative measure and, and does not expect uh, them to, to last past uh, whenever this caravan decides to hit or, or arrive at any of the ports. 
she said a week ago that she met with CBP, Customs and Border Protection officials, and other major stakeholders, and they decided to put them up just as a in case of an emergency situation. Uh, she reiterated that the, the bridge is open, uh, the gates are not closed. Um, if I could maybe clarify, the, the, the gate is on the U.S. side in case crowds were to spill onto the, the, the northbound bridge and try to get in illegally. So the signage faces Mexico saying, you know, you cannot come in this way. This is illegal. Uh, you have to go through a port. Now, what are you, uh, clarify this, because we are hearing reports that ports of entry are now being uh, barricaded as well. This is not literally a port of entry, but a bridge. That's the, uh, that's the distinction that you're drawing here? Well, the bridge and the port are, are next to each other. So you walk down the bridge past the port into Mexico, into Progreso, Novo Progreso. On the other side, if you're coming from Mexico into the port, there are no gates. Uh, if you were an asylum seeker, you could walk up to that walkway and, and ask for asylum. What are local officials having to say about these gates down there in the valley? In speaking to the different bridge directors at the different ports, uh, we spoke with uh, City of McAllen city officials yesterday who said that at their ports, which would be the McAllen-Reynosa and the Anzaldúes Bridge, those... Uh, areas would not have any additional barriers. Uh, everything's as normal. Um, it just seems like at this point, the bridge director for Progresso, in conjunction with CBP, made the decision to, just in case, have these gates go up. Does that strike you as odd? Because, A, we don't know which uh, bridge any group of people might or might not be trying to cross. And B, if one is closed, surely they might try to go across another. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, odd. But they reiterated that CBP at, the, uh, at all the different ports is prepared for any kind of crowd control situation. We had reports on Monday of uh, the day the announcement of the deployment of the troops of them conducting exercises, uh, crowd control, wearing their riot gear. So they, they, there's, a, there's a lot of preparation going into the just in case the caravan would make it this way. Again, not knowing where the caravan is, everybody's playing it as a wait and see situation. Lorenzo Sasueta Castro is with the McAllen Monitor, and he's reporting on this story. We'll have a link to his latest at TexasStandard.org. Lorenzo, thanks again for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. Early voter turnout in Texas has been booming so far this year, but Texas typically has one of the lowest rates of voter participation in the last midterm in 2014, only a third of registered voters actually voted. Partisans on both sides have bemoaned this fact, but as part of our ongoing Texas Decides project, KERA's Christopher Connolly reports on a group trying to get unlikely voters to go to the polls. Not just for the sake of taking part in the process, mind you, but reshaping the Texas political map in a particular way. In a nondescript West Dallas office complex, David Villalobos is on a roll, talking to about three dozen men and women, mostly black and Latino, all in matching teal shirts, ready to go out and knock on doors. His topic, how to get people excited about voting. How can we get them to actually pay attention or to actually be committed to the conversation that we're trying to have with them? Talk about the issues, right? Why? Issues like poor conditions in their kids' schools or an unequal criminal justice system. Starting there gets people to open their ears, he says, to listen. What else does it open up? 
Their mouths. What else? What else? What else? Something very deep. And their heart. And we don't open up our people's hearts. I mean, they're not going to take that action to go vote. We this is the central tenet of Texas organizing projects, voter mobilization efforts, connecting issues that matter to black and Latino communities to voting. The group is targeting irregular voters, people who maybe voted for president before, but don't show up during primaries in March or vote during midterms. TOPS Deputy Director Brianna Brown says campaigns usually ignore them. Our people are not voting. Black and brown folks are not voting because no one's asking them to vote, right, in these uh, midterm and local elections. So we're asking folks to vote, and we're also rooting that in a big picture, bold policy agenda. At the center of that agenda is criminal justice reform. TOP also works on paid sick leave, public education, affordable health care, immigrant rights. The group is backing candidates this year, mostly Democrats, who have pledged to fight for these issues. And Brown says TOP will help them win by turning out 26,000 Dallas County voters who wouldn't otherwise vote in this midterm election. So far, she says, 25,000 of those unlikely voters have already voted because of TOPS engagement. Door knocks, phone calls, literature, and we'll drive you to the polls on election day. I mean, it really is a comprehensive strategy to get our folks to the polls. The Texas Organizing Project is running similar campaigns in Harris and Bear counties, and it's all part of a long-term strategy. By 2022, Brown says TOP plans to build robust operations in the state's nine most populous counties and to add 850,000 voters of color to the electorate. Enough, she says, to put a governor in office who shares their agenda. We think our power is concentrated in our cities and our counties where the most black and brown folks live and that we really need to deliver a policy agenda that speaks directly to policy changes that affect everyday lives, right? And at the center is this fight for racial and economic justice. TOP is drawing on a long tradition of community organizations who have sought to organize African-Americans and Latinos in the political arena and beyond. Max Krockmall is a historian based at Texas Christian University. He says the Democratic Party traditionally champions these issues, but that in the last couple of decades, their statewide campaigns have largely courted moderate white swing voters, which has won them few offices and left many in black and Latino communities feeling neglected. And so what we've seen is that indigenous community organizations that are really rooted in African-American and Latino communities are filling that gap. They're, they're stepping into the breach and they're connecting those communities with the Democratic Party and the electoral process broadly. But I would say with, with a bigger vision, a vision of social transformation. Who am I missing? Do I have everybody but one? LaRonda didn't come today. She was on Back at Texas Organizing Project's Dallas campaign office, Shatamia Taylor is briefing her team of 14 canvassers on how many doors they need to knock this week. 6455. Well, see, the thing about it is, is I'm only telling y'all that so you are aware because I already know y'all going to hit it. We do. All right, that's what I'm talking about. Taylor says a lot of her canvassers were those irregular voters they're now reaching out to, and so they know how to talk to people who are unconvinced that voting matters. I love to see the passion in some of these young folks' faces when they're out here. I love the way that they talk about how they, they got to someone who said that they weren't going to vote, and now they are because they came and knocked on that door. 
Seeing that passion and getting people to vote is exciting, Taylor says, because it's the first step in building political power among Black and Latino communities. In Dallas, I'm Christopher Connolly for the Texas Standard. Hey, it's social media editor Wells Dunbar. Hi there, David. We are hearing from our friends and listeners about the show's top story, the installation of new barriers at the border. On our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Texas Standard, Christopher Bart asks, Is there an option where we don't automatically treat people like criminals? People are deriding the caravan of migrants for coming here seeking economic opportunity, but isn't that what pretty much all immigrants are doing here? Meanwhile, Morgan Hamilton says, Sure, it will slow people down including the American citizens that cross the border daily. And I know that's going to be a real topic of discussion in border communities where people do flow back and forth uh, each might day. might well be. Yeah, yeah. for uh, grocery shopping and more. You know, that's just one of the stories we're watching this Thursday. I'll be back with more stories from social media if I can shake off this candy hangover. <laughs> I'll be with you shortly. <laughs> We'd love to hear how your Halloween went, or you can let us know what's on your news radar right now. Tweet us at Texas Standard. Join the conversation on Facebook. Wells Dunbar is looking for you. He'll be back in 35. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas Oncology with a reminder that November is Lung Cancer Awareness Month. A preventative regimen including a healthy diet and exercise can help prevent lung cancer. More at TexasOncology.com. Business in your money on The Standard. I'm David Brown. There is a certain fantasy many well-heeled city dwellers in Texas harbor finding a little patch of West Texas of their own, a bona fide ranch, you know, something that uh, you can call a ranch. And there are real estate folks who can certainly help you with that. In Texas, about 95% of all land is, in fact, privately owned, much of it by bona fide ranchers. And we're not talking about weekend getaways either. In Presidio County, the largest ranch is over 390,000 acres. That's a ranch. But how did such parcels of land get to be so huge? Marfa Public Radio's Diana Wynn wanted to find out. If you want to learn more about the history of ranchers in the Marfa area, this is a good place to start. So this is uh, the Marfa Cemetery, and what I've always found interesting about this place is when you look at the tombstones, the names are the same as the ranches. That's Wirt Love IV, or Chip Love, a bank manager by day who moonlights as a rancher. Mitchell, that's an old ranch name. Mallard, that's an old ranch name. There's the Bogle Ranch, Livingston, another old family. But all of us end up out of here somewhere else sooner or later. Raising cattle is in his blood. The W.E. Love Ranch has been in the family for four generations. This is Leonard Love, and he's the first one that came out. And so he was born in 1839 and died in 1901. In the early 1900s, Leonard's son, Wirt Love, started to build up the ranch that's now Chips. He accumulated land holdings by buying acres outright over several years. But when people were settling the Big Bend in the late 1800s, they would have been subject to the Texas Homestead Acts. Texas sort of had written these homestead acts to try to prevent large land holdings. David Keller is with the Center for Big Bend Studies. He writes about early ranching in the region. Which has made it very difficult for landowners in the Big Bend and in desert parts of Texas to build their ranches to a size that was viable. Keller says the state's Homestead Acts evolved over time and limited ranchers to somewhere between 25 to 5,100 acres. To be profitable, you have to have really large land holdings in this area. 
you need to have enough grass for the cattle to graze, which out here means way more land because we're in the desert. But you also need to have a certain number of cows in order to make any money. So the state's Homestead Acts were a problem for early ranchers, especially in West Texas. Eventually, they learned to take advantage of loopholes. Ranchers would claim as many acres as they could with the state and then have their family, friends, and employees do the same. Then they would eventually buy the land from them and other property owners. And that, over time, piecemeal by piecemeal, parcel by parcel, allowed these ranches to be really big. But how big is big? Well, you probably shouldn't ask a rancher. Big Ben historian Lon Taylor says it's just not polite. You're never supposed to ask a rancher how much land he has or how many cattle he has, because that's like asking somebody how much money they have in the bank. The uh, standard answer is enough. I asked Chip Love anyway. He tells me the ranch is 32,000 acres. That's about the size of College Station. And if you think that's big, it's actually on the smaller side. The largest ranch in Presidio County is more than 12 times the size of that. Love says the family property has gotten smaller over the years because some relatives decided to sell their portions of the land. That's the way it is, you know, and so it's hard to keep everybody on the same page. Walking through the Marfa Cemetery, you see the region's ranching legacy etched across tombstones. Love points out another plot, his. It's next to his ancestors. He admits it's not in the best shape. There's ant bed making a good living and all this careless weed. And there's a little grandma grass. That's good. That's what you're looking for is grandma grass. Grandma grass. It's what the cows eat. There's a tiny bit growing on his plot. We call ourselves ranchers, but really we're grass farmers. Our fortunes live and die with the grass. Believe me, it's in your interest to take care of it. I tell him that little blade of grass is a good omen. And Marfa, I'm Diana Wynn. Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider, ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at worksafetexas.com. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. When you think about tech company buyouts, it's usually new tech giants like Amazon and Google, perhaps, that come to mind. But this week, the third largest tech merger ever was announced. IBM, a company that's been in business more than 100 years with 10,000 employees in Texas alone and a major research lab here, too. Big Blue, as they call it, will buy Red Hat, the leading maker of Linux software, for $34 billion. That's a B. And lots of people are saying this could be IBM's last best chance to remain a player in the tech world. What? Our tech guru, Omar Gayaga, is here to help us make sense of Big Blue's new red hat. Hey there, Omar. Hey, David. I like the uh, the color. Uh, yeah, had a little color. thing go in there. Yeah. So uh, let's begin with the hat, uh, the red one. What is Linux's uh, operating system for those who, who, who don't know about this stuff? And, and why is it so important, especially to IBM? Yeah, Linux is an open source software, an operating system similar to, say, like Windows or Mac OS, uh, but it has made a lot of headway in the enterprise space uh, because of its flexibility, uh, because it's it's a language that a lot of people understand. Uh, so Red Hat is, you know, their big business is doing this software for the enterprise space, for making IT solutions and kind of uh, solving big data business problems with uh, through Linux and through other solutions. So for IBM to acquire them, it gives them a big push into open source. It gives them a big push into the enterprise. And IBM is already a player in this space, mm-hmm. but it really gives them a leg up because they, they have been flailing the last couple of years. Uh, just their uh, earnings have not been uh, what they could be. So, well, they, you know, they, but they're competing with people like Amazon, Dell, uh, Google. They're all in this big sort of uh, 
you know, enterprise, uh, you know, solutions. Yeah, yeah. Th- this is the thing, though. I mean, when I think of IBM, I think of the big mainframe computers, right? I think of of, of the research and and the, and the, this whole idea of IBM as a computing solution. Um, but now they're they're they think that they need this this red hat to 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 get the job done. Did something happen along the way? Yeah, a lot of uh, IBM's business now, <clears throat> much like Amazon, much like Dell, has shifted to software and services. There, it's shifted to cloud services uh, that where they're competing against companies like Amazon, uh, like their you know AWS cloud uh, that where that a lot of businesses rely on. It's a big part store. of Amazon's sales. I mean, every you know when when investors are looking for you know how well Amazon's doing, they look at the cloud. Right. And, and what uh, the Red Hat deal does for IBM is it gives them a leg up in the what's called hybrid cloud space. And that is basically data that's not only internal inside a company, but also like out in the cloud and on these other servers. So it combines uh, being able to kind of have that data in multiple places. Now, I've been listening to, you know, CNBC and a lot of these uh, 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 sources for investors and, 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 and money news. And I'm they sorry. seem, uh, you know what I'm talking about, right? Mm-hmm. They they mm-hmm. seem to suggest that IBM's purchase of Red Hat might be a kind of act of desperation, a sort of last chance to to stay relevant. And, and I'm wondering what you make of of that argument. It definitely is a big play. Uh, the CEO of the company, Jenny uh, Ramadi, has gotten a lot of criticism over the last couple of years. So it feels definitely like a, like a Hail Mary. It feels like a big play of like, you know, of shaking things up. And the, the thing is that the deal will not even go through until probably the end of next year. And that's if it goes through. I've seen some analysts uh, complain that, you know, this might not even be a done deal. This might not actually happen. Wow, that's uh, a it's a pretty big gamble on IBM's part, but perhaps one necessary since everyone's rushing to the cloud these days. Omar Gayaga is our tech guru. He joins us every Thursday, and you can keep up with Omar's latest tech musings at TechMinuteTexas.com. Omar, great to talk with you again, and I guess we'll talk with you again next Thursday. Absolutely. Thanks for uh, chatting with me. We're coming up on 29 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. Texas Roundup is just around the corner. Stick around. Support comes from Texas Children's Hospital, focused on outcomes and care, and providing treatment to kids in the Lone Star State and beyond for more than 60 years. Texas Children's Hospital, personalized care for every child. More at texaschildrens.org. From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I am Becky Fogel with a roundup of news from across the state. Federal funding for the National Flood Insurance Program is set to expire at the end of the month if lawmakers don't reauthorize it. David Marstead is the chief executive of this FEMA program and explains what would happen if funding isn't renewed before November 30th. Well, during the lapse, the National Flood Insurance Program can't sell or renew flood insurance policies. And we, we wouldn't, if we needed to, which right now our, our financial position is okay, but we wouldn't be able to borrow from the U.S. Treasury to pay claims for uh, existing policies. Congress passed a temporary funding extension this past summer after the House and Senate did not agree to propose changes to the debt-plagued program. As of August 31st, nearly 750,000 Texans have national flood insurance program policies. Tens of thousands of people signed up after Hurricane Harvey. Texans who want to buy health insurance plans on the individual marketplace created by the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, can start enrolling today through December 15th. KUT's Ashley Lopez reports on what you can expect when you log on to healthcare.gov. 
The Obamacare marketplace itself hasn't changed much for folks in Central Texas. There's the same number of providers, even the exact same providers. And the prices of the 33 plans they're offering aren't drastically different either. Corey Hadamer with Foundation Community says some plans are cheaper, some are more expensive. But overall, people should shop around. Hadamer warns that there are currently fewer regulated plans in the market in general. That's thanks to the Trump administration's effort to weaken Obamacare. But she says Obamacare plans on healthcare.gov are required to provide a slew of essential benefits and protections. Plans outside of the healthcare.gov marketplace, so a lot of these short-term plans might not include those. That means those plans might not include emergency room coverage, maternity and labor coverage, and mental health care, while Obamacare plans have to cover those things. Like last year, open enrollment only lasts six weeks this year. The final day to sign up for health insurance is December 15th. Ashley Lopez, KUT News. Ahead of the 2019 Grammy Awards, the Recording Academy's Producers and Engineers Wing will honor Texas icon Willie Nelson. Nelson won his first Grammy in 1975 for Best Male Country Vocal Performance for Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain. In total, Nelson's won eight Grammys and been nominated 49 times. That's look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogel for the Texas Standard. Support for these Texas Standard headlines comes from the Texas Secretary of State, providing voters details on required identification for voting in person at the polls. More at votetexas.gov or 800-252-VOTE. You got to tune to the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Get your flu shot yet? The CDC recommends everyone over the age of six months get the annual vaccine, but of course not everyone does that for various reasons. Following information should not be considered one more reason not to get a shot, however, though it certainly is considered a positive development. The Food and Drug Administration has just approved a new treatment for the flu. The drug is called Zofluza, and it's meant for those over 12 who've had flu symptoms for less than 48 hours. The drug has already been approved for use in Japan, and trials have shown it's very effective. But before it got to where it is now, it started in the lab of a University of Texas at Austin professor. Dr. Bob Krug is a professor in the College of Natural Sciences. Dr. Krug, thanks for taking some time for the Texas Standard. You're welcome. Your link to Zafluza actually started, what, in the 1970s? Where were you then? Um, At the time, I was at Memorial Sloan Kettering Institute. And um, what I was interested in is, is how influenza virus initiates infection. What I discovered was that it used a unique pathway to start its synthesis of what's called the messenger RNAs that allow it to make viral proteins and viral RNAs. When you say so viral it, RNA, what are you saying there? Uh, what does it's, that mean? It's, it's the RNA that's in the virus particle. So the virus particle consists of proteins and RNA. And in order to make these, they have to start the process by this mechanism called cap snatching. That mechanism is crucial to start the infection. What I discovered is the mechanism. And uh, it was very surprising. It's quite unique. In fact, uh, in fact, doctor, as I understand it, it was so unique that when it came out, a lot of a lot of people actually didn't believe your (laughs) believe in your approach. Is that right? Correct. First of all, it took forever to get it published because uh, there was a lot of doubt. 
once it, we provided all the data, then people believed it. So this process, this mechanism, is what the new drug is directed against. It's directed against one component of this mechanism. So if you inhibit the first step, you just wipe out the virus. But to get to the point where there was an actual drug took 40 years. That is, it's amazing, especially given that, you know, uh, how... um, how much the how many people suffer from the flu every year? Why would it take so long? Was it because of resistance from people who didn't believe in the in the underlying uh, finding that you made, or was there something else going on there? Well, there's two two aspects. First of all, you have to realize that an influenza drug is not a great commercial <laughs> uh, benefit to companies. It's a fleeting infection. It's not like insulin, drugs, etc. And so there was initial resistance in investing in trying to find such a drug. What turned it around was the avian flu epidemic. The government realized that they could stockpile these drugs. And so that made it really financially good for the company. But then the second obstacle was you needed a three-dimensional structure of this enzyme so you could design drugs that fit into this protein so it would stop it from acting. And, and that turned out to be a very difficult endeavor. What does it feel like now, having made this discovery in 79 and now you're actually finally seeing it 40 years later come to the marketplace? Yeah, it's a good way to retire. <laughs> you know, I've been in this work for um, almost 50 years, and it's it's a good way to retire. It's very gratifying. This drug has the potential for a dramatic difference. Take this one pill, and as soon, uh, within a day after you take it, the amount of virus that you're shedding decreases a hundredfold. So that means it's inhibiting transmission, which is not the case for Tamiflu. Um, And the potential, which we still don't know, is perhaps this drug will cut down on mortality. You know, I'm 79 years old. You know, I'm one of the group that, you know, is at at risk for, you know, really getting life-threatening complications as Mm -hmm. well as people with underlying disease. If this helps to reduce that mortality, that's another plus. We don't know that yet, and um, we'll see. Dr. Bob Krug is a professor in the College of Natural Sciences at the University of Texas at Austin. Congratulations again. We certainly do appreciate you taking a few minutes out to talk with us about uh, about the development of this new drug, Zofluza. Thank you. Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at savenowforcollege.org. You're listening to the Texas Standard. I'm Marika Flatt, travel editor with Texas Lifestyle Magazine, here with your weekend trip tip. 
love the throwback feeling of the movies Back to the Future and Pleasantville, then you need to add a weekend trip to McKinney to your must-do list. Located just 30 miles from downtown Dallas, McKinney's historic downtown square is a short but beautiful one-mile drive east of U.S. Highway 75 that takes you past homes in the city's picturesque historic district. The downtown square maintains an authentic look and feel from the early 1900s, but it isn't the sleepy, antique-filled square it was just 15 years ago. The 100 or so mom-and-pop businesses that fill the square offer a wide range of specialty shops, boutiques, wineries, and more. You'll even find a comedy club and an escape room here for evening entertainment. You can spend the entire weekend on the square by booking a room at the Boutique Grand Hotel. The Grand offers 45 plush rooms, ask for one that overlooks the square, and is attached to the four-star Rick's Chop House. The Lounge at Rick's offers live music and is perfect for adult beverages before or after dinner. If you like bed and breakfast, McKinney Bed and Breakfast, the Nethery Estate, and the Redgate Inn are all about a 10-minute walk from the square. They serve robust breakfast or lighter fare for those who just like coffee or tea and a bit of something sweet in the morning. Back on the square, find treats for Fido at the Canine Cookie Company, beautiful gift items at a number of things, or third world fair trade jewelry and more at Fair and Square Imports, to name a few. If vintage is your thing, check out the Groovy Coop, where you'll find vinyl records, vintage clothing and decor, and novelty items. Or tickle your taste buds at the Loco Cowpoke Salsa Shop, Mom and Popcorn, and Goodies Texas. Shopping and exploring will no doubt make you hungry, and in downtown McKinney, you'll have 20 or so locally owned restaurants that offer a wide range of delicious cuisines. For farm to table options, try Harvest Seasonal Kitchen or Patina Green. Other tasty choices include Spoons Cafe, Comfort Foods, Soups and Salads, Sugar Bacon Proper Kitchen, American with a Texas Twist, or the Butcher Board, hearty hand-carved artisanal sandwiches. For fish and chips, a beer, and a game of darts, try the Celt, or enjoy an intimate French dinner at a Claire Bistro. That's your weekend trip tip. I'm Marika Flat for the Texas Standard. Marika Flat is travel editor with Texas Lifestyle Magazine. You can find more weekend trip tips at texasstandard.org. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, providing NetSuite ERP solutions built in the cloud. More at softwareaspromised.com. It is one of my favorite events on the Texas calendar. We're talking about the Texas Monthly Barbecue Fest. And I don't think there's any person in Texas who knows more about it than the person who puts it together. His name is Daniel Vaughn. He is the barbecue editor at Texas Monthly. Daniel, good to talk with you again. Oh, good to be here, David. I can't believe you found some time in your schedule with all that you're doing uh, for the for the festival to to actually speak with us. But I guess there is that thing called promotion. <laughs> right? Yeah, well, you know, we put it together, but it's the pitmasters who do all the work. Yeah, well, there there. Speaking of the pitmasters, some of these guys have been there since you guys got started several years back, right? Yeah, this will be the ninth time we get together at the Barbecue Fest, and some of the pitmasters who were there at the very beginning are still there today. We've got quite a few new ones as well. Uh, well, you want to name some names here? Well, we have 30 total pitmasters, which will be one of the biggest uh, collections of pitmasters yeah, we've had at the Texas Monthly Barbecue Fest. But the, the newcomer of the year is Reed Guess of Guess Family Barbecue in Waco. 
Tell us a little bit more about uh, about Guest Family Barbecue. They've been uh, been attracting a lot of attention. Yeah, they have. Um, not only for their great barbecue, but where they're doing it. Uh, Waco hasn't exactly been known as a capital of, of barbecue in Texas, but Guest Family really has changed that. Uh, he came from Lambert's Barbecue down in Austin. Oh, yeah, right. And decided that he wanted to... They wanted to change. He and his family wanted to change the scenery. So they moved up to Waco and opened a barbecue truck that just does straight barbecue. I think Central Texas has a reputation as being sort of the capital for, for Texas barbecue. Uh, you know, Franklin is is often mentioned, of course, uh, and all those uh, places in Lockhart that people like to flock to as a kind of mecca. But uh, it's, it seems like a, a lot of these cats coming to the Texas Barbecue Festival are from uh, up north. Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of folks all over the state. You know, Evie Mays will be coming in from Wolferth, Texas, all the way up in the Panhandle just near Lubbock. Uh, Tyler's Barbecue from Amarillo. Quite a few folks from the Dallas and Fort Worth area. I mean, they really are coming in from all over. Uh, uh, maybe you should explain how this works, because anyone who's passed by during uh, the Texas uh, uh, Barbecue Festival, uh, people passing by uh, have seen lines and wondered if people are standing around waiting for to be served brisket or if you know you have a, a lines to get tickets or you know how does this actually work give us a, a sort of the insider's guide to to navigating this thing well i mean the way it works is you buy a ticket and then that's really the last thing you buy as far as barbecue goes when you get into the festival so there's no uh, individual purchasing going on at any of the tables you go in with that ticket it gets you access to every one of these tables all 30 of these barbecue joints to go in and basically just stuff yourself uh, and if you've got a vip ticket it gets you in an hour earlier mm -hmm. than general admission mm -hmm. so really the the cost of the extra cost of that vip ticket is so you can get to some of those places that might have the longer lines like a snow's barbecue uh, um, yeah, right and and these we're really talking about the the best of the best because the the ones invited to this are uh, those who have made the top 50 list as put together by you and your crew right yeah, that's right. I mean, really, the only way to do it is to get on the top 50 list yeah. uh, or be one of our, you know, very few newcomers that we name. So, yeah, it's if you're invited to the festival, it's because you're one of the 50 best barbecue joints in Texas. OK, uh, finally, uh, one tip from the expert here, uh, because everyone, you know, and I know are going to be flocking to the bigger names. Is there a smaller name, perhaps someone less well known that you would say you got to check these guys out? Well, I would say uh, Baker Boys Barbecue in Gonzales. Uh, they came to a festival that we had in San Antonio, a, a smaller, um, a smaller barbecue and food festival that we had uh, we, that we called the Texas Monthly Meetup. Mm -hmm. And when they came, they did their signature stuffed chicken leg. So they take a chicken leg off the bone, stuff it with onions and jalapenos, and smoke it. Uh, and it is just ridiculous. It's, it's juicy, smoky, uh, uh, spicy. It's got everything going. And it was, at that point, one of everybody's favorite bites at the meetup. And I think it's probably going to be uh, one of everybody's favorite bites at the festival as well. So good, it's ridiculous. I love that <laughs> that description. <laughs> well, have you ever had a stuffed chicken leg off the bone? I can't say that I have. No, yeah, but it's, exactly. it does sound ridiculously good. You can check Only it out. Only in Texas barbecue. <laughs> yeah. You can check it out at the Texas Monthly Barbecue Fest the weekend of November 3rd through November 4th. Daniel Vaughn will be there. He puts this thing together every year. 
Uh, you can check out more uh, at our own website, texasstandard.org, where we'll have a link to all the important stuff or go to Texas Monthly's own barbecue channel online. Daniel Vaughn, barbecue editor, Texas Monthly. Thanks so much for checking in with us. Great to talk with you. Well, thank you, and we'll see you at the festival. Amen. Support comes from Texas Children's Hospital, focused on outcomes and care, and providing treatment to kids in the Lone Star State and beyond for more than 60 years. Texas Children's Hospital, personalized care for every child. More at texaschildrens.org. This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. The southern border of Texas has served as ground zero in the nation's immigration debate, that's for sure. We've covered concerns that the Trump administration's family separation policy could have lasting traumatic effects on the migrant children separated from their parents at the border. But a separate and recent study looks at the health impact on kids from families of mixed legal status, like the roughly 1,800 kids in the Valley who had a parent deported by Immigration and Customs Enforcement last year alone. Tanya Chavez is with one of the groups releasing this study, La Union de Pueblo Intero, or Lupe, a migrant relief organization that's based in the Valley. Tanya, welcome to the Texas Standard. Thank you for the invitation. What did this study find out, and and why did you uh, uh, embark upon it? La Unión del Pueblo Entero is an immigrant rights organization, and one of the reasons why we embark in this study is because we need our local elected officials to adopt policies to protect immigrant families from deportation. What the study found is that in 2017, in fiscal year 2017, 1,800 U.S.-born children, Mm -hmm. their parents were separated, were deported. We also found that parents are reporting symptoms of separation and anxiety in their children. And these symptoms are a little higher than the national standard. I want to come back to what those symptoms are, but I think a lot of listeners may wonder how was this study conducted because it's awfully difficult to use young people as subjects in this sort of uh, uh, research. The way that we did it is we did not survey kids, we surveyed their parents. And so we had over 200 survey participants Mm -hmm. who had at least someone in the family that was undocumented. And so the, the study was also conducted through a series of focus groups. One of these uh, focus groups was done with specifically with youth. And additionally, there were um, in-depth interviews with medical education and business professionals in the Valley. How was this stress manifest in the young people according to their parents? What parents were saying that they were noticing in their children is when children leave for school, they're afraid that when they come home, their parents won't be there. What we have found in this study is that in the Rio Grande Valley, one in four children of undocumented parents experience this type of toxic stress because of, uh, of their parents' immigration status compared to one to 10 children across the United States. What is toxic stress as, as opposed to uh, what most of us uh, might call uh, stress? Toxic stress changes the biology of a child's brain. 
including the areas of the brain that deal with attachment or fear. It changes the biology in such a way that it cannot be repaired. What does your organization hope to do with this research? The first thing is that we want local law enforcement to prioritize uh, local policy or resources towards making sure that the policemen are serving the public and not acting as immigration officials. The second thing is that to increase the use of site and release practices during traffic stops. So we know that in the Rio Grande Valley, there has been a lot of collaboration between law enforcement and immigration officials. And with SB4, these practices were made official and increased throughout every city and throughout the various counties. And so what we're proposing is that during traffic stops, law enforcement focuses on what the stop was about and not on whether or not that person has an immigration status. And then uh, finally, we're also proposing that local law enforcement accept alternative forms of identification during regular traffic stops. Because we know that oftentimes people post forward maybe their Mexican consular ID or they put forward their passport. In some instances, law enforcement proceed to call Border Patrol or some other immigration agent. What we're proposing is that they're willing to accept other forms of ID that does not have a country of origin as part of the, of the ID. Tanya Chavez is with Lupe, a migrant relief organization based in the Rio Grande Valley. We'll have a link to uh, the research at texasstandard.org. Ms. Chavez, thanks so much for taking a few minutes out to talk with us on the Texas Standard. Thank you, David. And you were listening to the Texas Standard. Here he is, social media editor Wells Dunbar, monitoring what Texans are talking about on this Thursday. Hi there, David. Yeah, we're continuing to hear from our friends and listeners about the show's top story, the installation of additional uh, things like gates and stuff, uh, hard barriers at the uh, international border crossings uh, between the U.S. and Mexico. We got an interesting uh, Facebook comment here from Bill Crawford. He emailed or uh, sent us a Facebook message, rather, saying that Nuevo Progreso, uh, which, is, uh, which is across the bridge from Progreso, Texas, mm-hmm, is right. a small town that's basically a shopping mall for winter texans you can buy everything from viagra to penicillin without a prescription that and cheap dental work for winter texans are the main businesses in nuevo progreso increasing the security on the progreso bridge is mostly going to annoy randy retirees from wisconsin and minnesota Hmm. not as many immigrants cross this bridge the question is who is getting the contract to build the security Uh, i guess that's just one of uh, several questions uh, really being put by this company yeah he's my understanding is oh, okay. and, and bill good yeah. to, good to hear from you uh bill knows a lot about that area he's written about the about the region uh, mm-hmm. and uh, talked about the border blasters and those sorts of things yeah so. he, he goes on to call the situation hilarious just this sort of buildup of uh you know just forces uh you know infrastructure there at the border mm-hmm. and you know one other interesting interesting aspect of it is i've seen like a meme on twitter or facebook basically showing you know the outline of the u.s mexico border this is where the troops are going and like the rough position of the so-called migrant caravan right which is down low 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 right. they uh, those folks aren't going to even
even reach there by the time we have our election right. uh, 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 less than a week from a today. A lot of the ways that we've been talking about this obviously shaped by what the president has yeah. had to say. Uh, but uh, it's not at all clear that a lot of the migrants have any sense of uh, the political dimensions of I what know. it is that they're doing. Yeah, I've been fascinated by that, too, how much attention has been focused on these people and uh, just... Um, yeah, well, what, what a truly, truly strange uh, turn of events it is for them and mm-hmm. uh, for us as a country. Well, from one holiday to another, today is Dia de los Muertos, the Mexican celebration honoring one's family forebears. And our pals at Marfa Radio uh-huh. have a really cool project going for Dia de los Muertos. They want to honor the memory of uh, listeners' loved ones. So uh, if they put this out in a tweet. We've uh, pinned that tweet to the top of our uh, Twitter page at uh, twitter.com slash Standard. There's a phone number you can call. Hmm. Or you can also email them just simply at love at marfapublicradio.org. So, very cool project. Uh, tanking family stories, family histories, and celebrating them on Dia de los Muertos, as is uh, the way to celebrate That's and remember. That's very cool. That yeah. is very cool. Once again, what's the hashtag? That is, uh, it is, there's a phone number. I don't want to read that on the air because you know, who okay. can remember numbers? Right. But go to our Twitter page, twitter.com slash Standard. Okay. We got it pinned up there. Or just email love at marfapublicradio.org. Got, got it. It was an email address, love at marfapublicradio.org. Terrific stuff. All right, we're out of time for the big broadcast, but of course the news continues at texasstandard.org and we're going to be back on the air tomorrow. We sure do hope you can join us. On behalf of the entire Texas Standard crew here in the Texas capital city, I'm David Brown wishing you a terrific Thursday. Philanthropic support comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Woldridge, Adrian Killam, the George Huntington Family, and the Hatton W. Sumners Foundation. R.I. Public Radio International.